is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother's need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Well, receiving a care package when you are far from home can instantly chase away the clouds of gloom and loneliness. Kindergartners, apart from their parents for the first time, get a boost of bravery when a special treat for mom and dad is slipped into their lunch bag. College students in their dorms will find the will to keep on studying when chocolate-covered espresso beans and a coffee shop gift card show up just before finals. And on a long deployment, even the toughest soldier will melt when hearing their name yelled out at mail call. When your loved ones feel like they're a world away, but you open a package from them that was thoughtfully prepared just for you, you remember that there's someone out there whose love for you is entirely independent of your valor or your fear or your grades or your career successes and failures. And you already knew that the person who sent you this package has been thinking of you and praying for you, but now their love has tangibly crossed the gulf between you, and you have something to touch and feel that they love you. Well, tonight, we'll see that in him sending his son, the Father has given us the best care package imaginable. Because the more we unpack the Father's gift, the more we find that Jesus is overflowing with self-sacrificial love that is a practical love just for us. And he doesn't recoil from the needs of his people, but he leans into them, even at great cost to himself. And yet, nothing Jesus does is at the expense of truth, and nothing is for show. He's not one to exchange difficult truths for Hallmark gift, gift card platitudes, and he's not a busybody who cares more about looking or feeling loving than actually being helpful. In other words, everything in this care package with the fa- which the Father has sent to us demonstrates that his love for us is not in mere word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. As we struggle in this life, pilgrims from far from our homeland and laden with guilt and often battling for confidence that we are truly heirs in the kingdom of heaven with the right to be called children of God, our Father in heaven has sent his kids just what we need to have confidence that we are his And with that confidence, we can get to work acting like his kids, by loving one another, something like the way that God has loved us. Verse 11 then begins, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this is the message which you have heard might sound familiar. And if it does, there's good reason. Chapter 1, verse 5 began, This is the message which we have heard. Only there... John launched into talking about how God is light, and so his children walk in light. But here, John uses this phrase to springboard into speaking about love, how Christ has perfectly demonstrated God's love by laying down his life to take away the sins of his people. 
Well, this repetition of this is the message is helpful in a book which many have had difficulty nailing down the structure of because it acts as one of two organizational signposts for 1 John as a whole. John only uses this signpost here and in chapter 1, and so it serves to break the book's central message into two parts. Here in verse 11, it introduces a deep exploration of the idea of loving one another. But previously, John used it to introduce the idea of walking in the light. Together, the reader is to understand that, that walking in light by love are the dual scaffoldings on which the whole of this book is built. But now, we might feel like asking John if light and love are two different messages or one. And the answer is, well, it's kind of both. Walking in light and love are different, but they're also inseparably linked, like walking in faith and repentance. In fact, walking in light and love is basically John's way of talking about walking in faith and repentance. But John loves tweaking explanations about anything in a way that encourages his audience to think freshly and deeply about the gospel. All this means that, so far, John has been low-key teaching us what faith is by explaining us uh, to us what walking in the light is. Walking in the light, or having faith, is the Spirit granting new creation light in God's people so that we earnestly confess, I am sinful, God is not, but the Father has sent his Son in the flesh to be his only Christ and my only advocate. After that, through the lens of abiding in the light, John warned us that false teachers and antichrists are full of baloney if they try to teach you a different confession of faith than the one that you have known from the beginning. That brought us right up to last week, where John introduced the idea of practicing righteousness. In this way, he was really teaching us that genuine faith will bear the fruit of repentance. None of us are going to get so swole in this life that we can bench press the whole law like Jesus. But where, whether it's with large weights or small, we are all going to work out in the kingdom of God. Then in closing with verse uh, 310, John summarized that whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he gave us the sneak peek into tonight, saying, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the camera panned up from all of us repenting of our scrawny obedience and practicing righteousness, and we saw that the name of the kingdom gym that we've been working out in is brotherly love. Now, there were a few smirks last week, and at least one of you gasped under your breath when I referred to Jesus as our ultimate gym bro. And frankly, that response was fair. So Let's go with Jesus as being our personal trainer instead. I think that's a more reverent analogy. My brother is a personal trainer, and whenever I go to the gym with him, the first thing he tells me is what not to do. He's all about safety first. And likewise, the first thing that we are told here is what not to do. Don't be like Cain, verse 12, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. John makes a minor link here back to verse 10 and reminds us that there's only two kinds of people in the world, children of the devil and children of God. And he keeps the reader, this keeps the reader in a mindset that's able to receive the wisdom of verse 13 and 14 coming up, that Christians should not be surprised when non-Christians act like Cain toward us. 
and that we don't have to wonder whether we are children of God or the devil if overall we love one another rather than compete with and resent each other. Now, popular English translations like the ESV and the NIV and the NKJV, they use the word murdered here. And the King James does a little bit better by rendering it as slew. But a couple lesser-known translations get it even more accurately with slaughtered or violently murdered. Uh, The New Living Translation definitely gets it wrong when it just says merely killed. There's a whole different word that John could have used if that's all, all that he wanted to convey. And besides that, killing is not in and of itself even necessarily a sin. But John wants to be clear by using this word that the actions of Cain were vicious. He did not merely kill his brother Abel. He violently butchered him. There was a serious heart problem in Cain that John intends to get further into. And this is the reason he continues in verse 12 and asks rhetorically, and why did he slay him? Because his works were evil while those of his brother were righteous. Interestingly, God's rejection of Cain's sacrifice and acceptance of Abel's is often mistakenly interpreted as because Cain made an offering of the earth. And uh, this implies that his offering was representative of a love of the world, while Abel's was accepted because it was an animal sacrifice. And the blood indicated that his offering was somehow representative of the future sacrifice of Christ. In this misinterpretation, then, Christ was rejected, not, uh, Cain was rejected not because of his heart, but because his sacrifice was somehow not typological enough of Christ and the cross. And this does sound kind of plausible, and it feels a bit spiritual, but it's also completely speculative. John doesn't allude to anything like that here, and no New Testament author alludes to anything like that. Instead, John pulls back the veil and about what kinds of thoughts that were characteristic of Cain, which led to his outburst. Still continuing in verse 12, then we read that he was a man stewing in jealousy because his works were evil while those of his brothers were righteous. Cain's motivation was that he had a heart of competition with his brother. He wanted God to recognize that his works were better than his brother's, whether they were or not. Instead of valuing the loving work of God towards towards sinners like himself, and therefore humbly giving his offering from a heart out of thankfulness, Cain was presumptuously trying to prove himself to God. This is revealed in his anger and frustration with God for rejecting his offering in Genesis 4 or 5. He felt that God was obligated by his work to accept him, the very type of prideful work that God rejects. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God's rejection had nothing to do with Cain's offering being of the earth versus his brother being of of a blood offering. It was Cain's competitive and presumptuous heart that God rejected. Now, I think it's fitting to take a moment and consider what James has to say about the war that went on inside of Cain's heart. Because for one thing, in its overall thesis, the epistle of James greatly complements the epistle of uh, 1 John. 
the key theme of 1 John is to walk in light and practical, tangible love so that one might have assurance that they will persevere as a child of God. While the key theme of James is to persevere in the faith with uprightness and integrity, the light, expressing faith by one's works, which is loving one another. So it's no surprise that just as verse 12 and 17 speak of the heart, so too James unpacks the war that goes on inside of a heart of those who do not have peace with God as his children. James writes in the fourth uh, chapter of his epistle, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and could not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then skipping down a couple verses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that has made, uh, that has made to dwell, that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some points to glean from James here, which, which deepen our understanding of the war going on inside of Cain's heart is one, lashing out in anger is an extension of a heart that wants something it can't have. Two, this heart dwells on and mulls over that something which God has not granted instead of being thankful for what God has granted. Three, the sense of longing becomes a sense of proud entitlement. Four, the sense of proud entitlement becomes justification to take what is wanted by force. And five, the violence against the children of God is really warring as an enemy against God. Cain wanted to be approved by God over his brother, but because we're all sinners, we cannot be approved of God apart from faith and the work of Christ. For Cain and Abel, that faith should have manifested itself in thankfulness for the victory of the promised seed over the serpent and his seed. Cain was of the evil one, though. So how could his heart hope for the victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of his own spiritual father, the serpent? He couldn't hope for his own team, for his own family to lose. So God rejected Cain's sacrifice because Cain was proud and presumptuous in his own self-righteousness, but he gave grace to Abel. And isn't it curious how the most hot-headed people are often those who lack the most humility and have the biggest blind spots regarding their own sins, while at the same time being so judgmental and law-oriented towards others? They walk in an unstable, restless, double standard that is often painfully obvious to everyone around them but themselves. They cry afoul about injustices toward them, while at the same time being hypercritical of others, particularly the children of God. But we are called to love one another, especially the children of God, because God has already judged Christ in our place. It's not for us to sit and nitpick the things that we don't like about our brothers and sisters. It should be no surprise to us that 
other Christians are still sinners and difficult to get along with at times. Because we ourselves are still sinners and difficult to get along with. And that struggle with our own sins should lead us to empathy with one another and joy that they too, even as sinners, have found peace with God. But this is an empathy which the characteristically proud world, that is, the children of the devil like Cain, they cannot share because they have no peace with God. And for this reason, John then tells his audience, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Now, the way John says this, he's not implying that his immediate audience had experienced any particular hatred or persecution. He's probably not telling them to stop being surprised by the world hating them. However, that could be a possible reading of this grammatical construction if there was some other clear indication that from John or from history that the church was under persecution. If we had a solid date for 1 John that was closer to 80, 85, or 90, the book might correlate with the vicious persecution that was prominent during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And that might serve as evidence that John was telling them to stop being surprised and the, at the hatred coming at them. But 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were likely written somewhere between 80 to 85 AD and sometime definitely after 70. Domitian's reign was from 81 to 96, so 1st John was probably written either just before or during the beginning of his reign. At that time, persecution of Christians was only local or intermittent, and some congregations may have faced little to no persecution. It would come, though, and if it had not already, John wants them to know that when it did, they shouldn't be shocked. It is not, this is not just general wisdom, though. Of course, our congregation hears this from the pulpit often, but it can hardly be foot-stomped enough how radical the idea was that the righteous might expect to suffer at the hands of the wicked. This was a paradigm shift for the New Testament church, with any of the New Testament church with a Jewish background. For them, it was more sure than death and taxes that if you were bad, you would be cursed, and if you were good, you would be blessed. As Job's friends so unhelpfully counseled him, under normal circumstances, under Moses and David, if you were suffering, it was definitely worth considering whether you had been immoral. New Covenant Christians have to break away from the blessing and curse paradigm mindset. So the New Testament authors all present a, a unified front in teaching this culturally counterintuitive concept. James joins us again tonight because he hit the nail on the head when he said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various tri uh, vari meet trials of various kinds. And Peter says it this way, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, comes up to when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, we know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our brothers. By addressing his audience as brothers in the last verse, and using we here, John once more sprinkles in his customary vote of confidence on the saints and shows that his intention is not to discourage their hearts or prompt them to judge themselves too harshly. 
we all know very well that at times none of us is above thinking a bit canish. But remember what we're doing here. We are in the kingdom gym of brotherly love, practicing righteousness. You are already in. You are not outside flexing and showing off and hoping that someone who works inside will be so impressed that they call you in and give you a lifetime gym membership. This is a family-owned gym. You are already a part of the family, and your personal trainer is just telling you how not to work out. He's not saying that if you mess up, you're out of the family. You always have an advocate with the gym owner. And John knows that it's not going to be characteristic of you to come into the gym every day and never stretch and always overestimate how much you can lift so that you're constantly pulling a muscle. And John doesn't expect that you're going to pretentiously strut around the gym like Conor McGregor or wear comically expensive shoes that aren't right for fitting, uh, for lifting. In other words, he knows that you're not going to spend your time in in this gym like Cain would. But no one is above occasionally acting a fool in the kingdom gym of brotherly love. And so none of us are above listening to a warning that acting like Cain is precisely what brotherly love is not like. So if you act like him and you get called out, be humble and take the correction. But if acting that way is not your overall disposition in life, there's no need to start questioning your salvation. In fact, the reason you shouldn't be surprised when the world hates you is that you are the children of God. The world senses and hates your overall disposition, whether you occasionally act a bit like them or not. They don't accept you into their club when you stink at all of genuine faith and particular affection for Christians. The world is judgment-oriented and unhappily striving and warring with God and trying to prove themselves, whereas John believes that those he is writing to do have peace with God, even if they aren't always sure that they do. John is principally telling us, because I see your workouts are going well, press on and keep doing more. Keep loving one another, and in doing so, be confident that you are God's. It's going to be hard for you to endure the hatred of the world without being confident that you are the children of God, and that you are enduring this pilgrimage in a world that you are an outsider in. So be confident of who your Father is and you can be content walking around in a world that is set against him. Keep in mind that you have a different inheritance and that the world to come after this pilgrimage is your home. Verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, in the center two verses of our passage, John makes this clear black-and-white contrast just as anyone who is not with Jesus is against him, likewise, anyone who does not love the people of God is against them. There is no neutrality. There is war and peace. There may be civility, particularly in our modern culture that prides itself on a tolerant, multicultural, multi-faith society, but tolerance is a pseudo-peace. Under the surface, there is unjustified anger against God's people. But again, this is speaking of an overall disposition. Christians will occasionally get under each other's skin. If we say we are not without the sin of ever getting annoyed with another Christian, 
We are liars, and the truth is not in us. But largely, the child of God loves his brothers and sisters. Verse 16. By this, we have known love, because he on our behalf laid down his life, so we should lay down our lives on behalf of our brothers. And here we come to the crux of the matter. Christ really came in the flesh. He really laid down his life as our substitute. He really appeased the wrath of God on behalf of his people. He really freed us from the curse of the law and really ascended into heaven, where even at this very moment, he is really advocating us, advocating for us to the Father. This is the gospel message message which the clarity of Scripture, or what we sometimes refer to as the perspicuity of Scripture, applies to. There is no ambiguity. Jesus actually died and rose in the flesh. And again, here, the pernicious heresy of docetism finds no friend in John. The Son did not only appear to have taken, uh, did, did not only appear to have taken on flesh, and did not only appear to have died and risen, he did it all. If Han Solo were a Christian in the real world, he would say, it's true. The incarnation, the cross, it's true. All of it. And because he has indeed laid down his life on behalf, on our behalf, so we too should lay down our lives. Unlike the Greek gods who were no moral example to anyone, our God, the one and only true God, is love. And he expresses that love in deed and truth, and we ought to emulate that kind of love. Therefore, verse 17, if someone has the goods of the world and might see his brother while having need, and might close up his heart from him, how is this the love of God abiding in that person? It's a funny thing that sometimes giving up our time or our possessions or our comforts for someone that you love can be harder than giving up your life for them. We imagine that we could do nothing less in good conscience than to step forward like Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games and offer ourselves as a tribute when the moment presents itself. But can we live below our means on a budget for our brothers that we might have something to give when they are in serious need? See, the goods that John is speaking about here are not just frivolities or nice things to have. They are the resources needed to maintain life. So John is not speaking uh, about being selfish for not maybe loaning your video games to your buddy. He's talking more about not loaning a space heater in the winter when the AC is out and below zero outside. Because, well, it's Friday, and I've had a long week, and I was planning on catching a movie, so this just really isn't the best time. And so you leave your brother's text on read, on read, and you plan on telling them the next afternoon, ah, gosh, I'm sorry, I just got your text. Uh, did you find a space heater? I would have loved to help. You know, I, I really care about you. Verse 18, little children, let us not love like that, by word or by tongue, but by action and truly. Now, Christian ethics involve the mind and heart and and speech and actions. So John's purpose is not to set up speech as antithetical or lesser than action. The tone here is not like a modern-day person who might speak pejoratively about thoughts and prayers, compared to actions. Many loving actions begin as prayers. Instead, 
the words of the tongue referred to here aren't genuine words of love that stop short, uh, stop just shy of giving. They are fake words, merely filling the awkward air until a person with a shut-up heart can flee the situation. Think of the feel that James gives to the words that precede when someone is just about to leave their brother cold and hungry and carry on on their business. He writes, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? This is the heart of someone who has the resources to help a brother in a pressing need, but when that brother asks for help, they fill the air with platitudes while tapping on their watch and saying, Oh, look at the time. I have to run. I really hope things work out. So the words that John is speaking of here are cringeworthy platitudes, not genuine comforting words or prayers. They're words intended to be used as a smokescreen to hide the heart. Finally, at the end of verse 18, when John says to love in deed and truth, a better translation might be by action and truly. So we ought to love by doing something in a way that is not superficial. This means that John is not talking about two different ways to love. He's speaking of one way to love. Love is a verb which does something, even if it might cut into our sustenance, And that one way to love ought to be done wisely and prudently in a way that glorifies God. These are not loving actions done rashly out of mere empathy. They are done prayerfully with consideration of timing and effectiveness. These are the kind of actions that, if possible, truly rectify a bad situation and leave the person feeling like you were happy to love them. Like a well-timed kindergarten cookie, espresso beans before finals, or a very personalized care package for a soldier which is overflowing with goodies that grant her a moment of perspective and rest from the loneliness of war, the real bodily incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus, really accomplished our salvation and has really left the children of God knowing that they are loved. And so may our love for one another reflect this type of love indeed and truth. Amen.